0: Welcome to the third episode of Series 4 of BLA Connections, A Clear Voice. I'm your host, Natalie Watson, and I aim to bring you discussions and insights from experts across the globe on all things laryngology. We hope that you have had a chance to listen to our first episode, this series, the management of airway stenosis with Professor Sandhu, and his second episode on persistent throat symptoms with James O'Hara. Do make sure you have a listen. Today, we are going to revisit airway stenosis, but this time from a patient perspective. I'm delighted to invite Charlie Harper to the BLA Connections, a clear voice podcast, who will take us through his journey. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: It's brilliant to have you on on the podcast. So why don't we go straight into it? And would you mind sharing your story of your airway narrowing?
1: Of course. Let me take you back to 2018. Before I had any kind of disease, I um, was a young adult who was running half marathons. I was swimming 70 lengths and really fit. And I just started a PhD. So it was a really big time of my life in which everything was thriving. So, this story that I'm going to tell. Is very much about the relationship between the specialisms of ENT and rheumatology, mm-hmm. the the combination of surgery and immunosuppressants, and the mm-hmm. balance of getting this right, and also the communication between these two bodies. And it's only between this kind of the right amount of synchronicity between these two specialties are the reason why. I'm really here today, and while I'm able to speak to you with such a clear voice. So, moving on from 2018 and being a kind of a fit young adult in March of 2019, I was diagnosed with a condition called granulomatosis with polyangiitis, which yes. is essentially a, a form of vasculitis. For GPA, as I'll call it through the podcast, this is inflammation of the small blood vessels within the body. For me, at that point, it very much affected my lungs. So I got a lot of clots on my lungs. So mm-hmm. my breathing was quite impaired. Mm-hmm. I had very extreme nosebleeds in which I ended up having to use tampons were the only thing that I could use that were able to stop the stream of bleeding. And one of the most extreme things for me was I completely lost my hearing. I had completely lost the ability to hear and was therefore completely reliant on. Um, on others to speak for me, so I was diagnosed, and mm. I was put straight on rituximab and high dose of prednisolone, in which we slowly reduced. And mm. to be honest, at this point, me and my wife thought this is the end of our journey. Things were improving. I was reducing medications. All the symptoms I just talked about had yeah. gone.
0: Oh, that's a- fantastic!
1: And this seemed a really positive step for us, and we thought that's it with all the drama. But moving on from March to June of that year, I started noticing some strange things that hadn't come up before for me with GPA. So the things I mentioned before never seemed to return. But the new things coming up was like a funny wheeze that was very much quite low down in my throat. And also this kind of breathlessness. And I was noticing most doing exercise and other things. And also, when I was speaking, I spoke to my rheumatology team, and they said, "Charlie, you got to get straight to A and E. This is really not sounding right." Yeah. So, I, so I go to A and E, mm. and I see some of the ENT doctors there, Yeah. and initially we looked at the symptoms looked at things and they were looking at things like asthma or thinking that maybe after my gpa i had some quite serious lung damage and it was a combination of these two mm. so i was sent home and this back and forth happened for for a couple of weeks but it was getting much much worse so i ended up having come back into AE. but fortunate for me i didn't just see an ent doctor but i also saw a consultant the consultant I think must have seen some GPA patients before because they realized that what had been missing was the position of my head during the scoping. So when my head was facing forward, looking Mm. straight ahead, Mm. they weren't able to see any issues. But once it was turned up, in which my eyes were looking at the ceiling and we were able to scope down, they saw exactly what it was which is called a subglottic stenosis.
0: Now, that's a really interesting point for people to understand because when you're scoping, you can't see the subglottis easily without that head position. So actually, that's a huge point for learning for a lot of ENT listeners out there, especially when they're not used to looking at the subglottis. That's a brilliant point that you've mentioned there. So... Thank you for sharing that and for teaching our ENT colleagues what to do.
1: <laughs> well, I think it, little things like that, I think they were such a big deal for me because I think for me, some of the scariest things are toing and froing. Where where yeah. this happened before with GPA. I knew there was something wrong, mm. but I couldn't really pro- properly explain it. And then Therefore, the communication didn't happen with the doctors. Often sent home again because it just wasn't very clear. And yeah. then you have to come on the right person yeah. who knew this. And once I was diagnosed, all all action came immediately. I was straight booked for a, for a dilation of my trachea, as well as that there was ballooning and there was lasering,
0: mm-hmm. and the,
1: kind of the combination of these things was incredibly helpful. I remember coming out of my first surgery. Breathing so well. And I walked home from the hospital with my wife and I was just feeling absolutely wonderful. Miraculous, um, isn't it? It was absolutely miraculous. And at that same point, because of clear activity and inflammation, I was then moved on to cyclophosphamide, which mm. is a pretty horrible drug, I have to say. Anyone who's off, on it, I do feel very much feel sorry for because you have a few weeks of feeling almost poisoned you're feeling so sick your body's so white and unwell you're just about to feel human again and then Mm. it's the next infusion because you often have you often have bulks of six Mm. Um, you could now go to six to ten and i was on six at that point and each one like you'd get better and then go down so it was a tricky combination because we had a time the cyclophosphamide and the surgeries in which yeah. there wasn't too much of an infection risk so there was quite a lot of a balance there again
0: was, that communication between rheumatologists and laryngologists yeah Very so yeah, vital really,
1: really important so let me take you from june that yeah. i was just describing there to october uh-huh. and in october of 2019 it was hard for the ENT surgeons to really understand what's going on my first surgery as i described to you was incredibly successful and i really felt like i was able to be myself again and breathe mm. but what was happening was every time i had a surgery the length of the effectiveness was reducing so the first one it was over a month next right. one was a month next one was three weeks and then two weeks and by the time i got to november it was about four days. Yeah. So it would be four days and it would close up massively. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't shower. I, could, I was essentially either bedbound or sitting down because it was so difficult to breathe on yeah. the nebulizer all the time. So at this point, it was clearly my vasculitis was way out of control here. Yeah. And so only a month later in November, I had to be rushed into hospital for emergency tracheostomy. And at this point, I knew it was coming I knew it was coming because I could feel this worsening of it and thought they warned me before and this was the only way it was going to go. Yeah. But what I definitely wasn't prepared for was how much a tracheostomy alters your life. Yeah. It is profoundly different with a tracheostomy. Mm-hmm. Like an example I wanted to tell you was about speaking. Mm-hmm. So if you have a stenosis, and the airway is still very much blocked. Even if you have a tracheostomy, it's not possible to use what they often call a speaking valve, which means that when you breathe out, it blocks the air so you can make a voice. So what I had to do is I had to have an HME, humidifier on the end of my tracheostomy, and I had to physically press it as hard as I can to have some sort of voice that came out. And that was massively... It was just life-changing for me. It was so difficult. And it
0: doesn't. It's not like an automatic thing, is it? You have to no. really think about yes.
1: Yes, you do. occluding
0: it to speak, which is yes. obviously doesn't come naturally because it's not what you're used to.
1: Mm. Completely. So I'll take you a little bit further on now. So if we move from November to February of 2020, mm. at this point, unfortunately, I completely lost my voice. I had no ability to speak. I almost had 100% stenosis, so there was no air going at all to my, either my nose or my mouth. So at that point, I also had very, still very poor hearing from the GPA, but then also lost the ability to speak. You've got to imagine yourself in this situation. So you can't speak, you can just about listen, and your wife is pregnant, and then within a week or so, she's giving birth uh, to our daughter. There were a few complications and it was not a straightforward birth. And the supporting partner wasn't able to speak, wasn't really able to hear, wasn't really able to be part of it like you'd want to be as a partner. And I can't really explain this. It's almost mind boggling, that kind of how dramatic it was. It always felt like it'd be a soap opera. Absolutely.
0: Um, the world's imploding and COVID hit.
1: Yes. Yeah. So yeah, just yeah.
0: put the knife in. Oh my goodness. This is terrible yeah, for you. It was, it was absolutely thing.
1: terrifying. So what happened after that was because this was getting so severe again, I was on my round of cyclophosphamide mm. um, in which, again, these are these six infusions. So you have one and the other and then they slowly space out. But the important thing about this this time which was really difficult for me mm. was firstly the risk of an infection and a vicious yeah. infection was really high at that point particularly because covid had just come in as well yeah. so the risks around the tracheostomy and anything going into it breathing into it it's mm. hard to use masks it was hard to use protection you very felt very vulnerable but the worst thing for me was that i was recommended by nurses that with cyclophosphamide it actually comes out In your urine, in your sweat for about 48 hours afterwards. Uh So I wasn't able to hold my daughter for about 48 hours after the surgery. And each time I was coming home so ill and pale, I could only walk back from because no one could pick me up. And it was, I was hardly able at that point really but all we wanted to go home is and have a hug with someone that you love because you're just feeling so rubbish and i wasn't able to do anything to help my daughter for 48 hours because i couldn't risk touching her with so much prednisolone my sweating was profuse we could see it with our bedding being absolutely it was absolutely bright orange at that point so it was again a really tough time for us covid had hit we were isolating at home but we were also terrified and had a newborn baby so It it was a bit crazy, I have to say.
0: Absolutely devastating. What a... Your world just completely tipped on its head, didn't it?
1: It did. It tipped on its head and it felt like we were being... repeatedly unlucky it was like everything that people warned us about in bay happened But it's very rare Um, i think someone tried to calculate that the different situation by gpa and my stenosis in terms of how bad it got was like winning the lottery twice those were the kind of the odds with it moving on from this really challenging time this was really difficult for me and my family if we moved to august from february to august so i'd finished cyclophosphamide good news is my speech slowly returned i wouldn't say at all that it was proper speech it was still very raspy Uh and it required quite a lot of time to explain something or to especially for people that i didn't know but the important thing for me was it was just about understandable I no longer needed to do or completely rely on others. I was just about able to make myself understandable, which was so important to me. Mm. Um, And what had been decided since February was that we weren't going to pursue dilations at that point because Mm. the vasculitis was so severe that it didn't feel worth doing. No. So in August, once the speech slowly returned, we looked down and looked like there was some reduction in inflammation. We decided to start dilations again. Was
0: that, Uh, when they looked down, was that an MLB while you were asleep or was it just in the clinic?
1: No, I think they looked down when I was asleep. So it's a tricky one because uh, this is a hard thing to explain, to be honest, but with GPA... There are different biomarkers that you can use. Often people rely on CRP. They look at um, your anchor levels. They look at different things within your immunoglobulin. There isn't something exact really. And the problem with taking steroids is that steroids hide almost all of these blood tests in terms of they make it look better than it is. So Mm -hmm. we were blind on them biomarker side so we had to be completely reliant on the surgical side to see what was happening so we started doing dilations again and i was hopeful at this point but unfortunately we were still back to where we were the year before where we did do a first one that helped a bit but again they were basically massively not lasting as long as you hoped and they would be uh, in the end a week So. We got to September of, of 2020 and I sat down with my consultant who is such a lovely man. And he's always been really frank with me. And because he's, I'm in the medical sciences with my occupation, it, we could always talk to each other more clinically than some might. And he was honest in me and said, look, Charlie, like this isn't working. We, mm. I can't continue to. F- provide you with these surgeries if it's not having an effect this just isn't either fair on you or it's going to do worse things to your body because there are always risks from these surgeries yeah so at that point we decided that we had to stop and he and he said to me look i i know these really great people in london they are specialists in airways and particularly stenosis, I'm going to send you a referral to them with all the details and let's see if they can do anything to help. Mm. So this was a big step for us because I'd been so used to this care where I was living that that moving to London for the treatment was a big thing but unfortunately just as we did the referral all hell broke loose with covid so elective surgeries had stopped
0: it was the
1: second wave right yeah second mm-hmm. wave any rammed all sorts of things so the process that would usually happened for a ring supposed to meet the team of course had to completely stop until mm-hmm. there was a calm within covid
0: and all this time, you've got a safe airway with your trachea. Yes,
1: that's the important thing. So I had a safe airway with my trachea, but we were trying to look for that—that that, the ability to breathe beyond that, because
0: exactly.
1: Although a tracheostomy is safe, it is—I just want to say at this point that it is—it is incredibly limiting for the person mm. because it's a plastic tube that is inserted below the point where you normally breathe you tend to have very short breaths because you don't have the natural flexibility of the the body and the muscles what you're getting through this tube is almost like a straw it's it's very fixed and depending on the weather you can have kind of very extreme amount of phlegm so from what I was doing before as I said before I was doing half marathons I was swimming with a tracheostomy I was really at the point where I was walking down the street to the post box Which Mm. is about 100 meters. I couldn't do. Like it was even
0: despite the tracheostomy, you felt extremely limited. Yeah, the tracheostomy
1: didn't. The tracheostomy is still isn't. It's when you're when you're sitting, you're at home and just you're sitting on a sofa and not moving. The tracheostomy allows you to breathe clearly, but any sort of movement that's active. Yeah. The problem is because it's not like muscles. it, It. It it isn't flexible with that Mm. natural opening that you might do if you're breathing faster. So Mm. going out for a walk or doing other things like that, it massively limited that. I was completely Mm. out of breath and you often get very lightheaded from it. Mm. And I also had lost all my confidence physically with the prednisolone having, to be honest, had massive muscle wastage. So we had to go this for quite a number of months until Mm. April of 2021. After the second wave had had gone down, I got a letter from London and was able to meet this wonderful team in London Mm -hmm. who were multidisciplinary there. I had a brilliant NDT meeting a week before surgery, in which I had a health psychologist there, nurses, the surgeons, everyone was working together and they were all on the same call, which was amazing. It was able to answer all my questions and we were really able to just make me feel far more ready for what was to happen next. Even examples of what other patients had experienced in the past during the period of surgery was really helpful. So it was booked in for June and this was a laryngeal tracheal resection that that was going to be done to me. And In April, we had agreed, after they had to be able to look down my throat when I was asleep, they agreed that I was eligible, which I was very grateful for because we were very worried due to my GPA and the unpredictability with the inflammation before that I wouldn't be eligible because it wouldn't be deemed safe. So in June, I went into hospital for two and a half weeks, Mm -hmm. in which I had the resection, And then after the resection, basically, we had to have a stent in my throat for about two weeks, Mm -hmm. allow things to heal before we took it out. And those two weeks are quite difficult because you can't speak. The stent was such a major stent that it didn't allow any airway through. Mm -hmm. And I think at that point, I wasn't prepared for how to communicate. I was trying to write on a whiteboard but i was slow at writing and with my dyslexia i was missing things out and then again trying to do other things was difficult as well so i think communication within the hospital was quite hard which was quite tough or also speaking trying to speak to family at home Mm. but i got through that we we had the stent out and at that point which was amazing and life-changing for me was we able to remove the tracheostomy
0: amazing
1: so the tracheostomy that even now has created this giant kind of a shape on my throat because i had it for 18 months i was so used to it that i couldn't believe life without it it was so entrenched in my life was removed
0: amazing
1: and that was life changing for me it allowed me to have a stronger voice yeah. for the first time in 18 months it allowed me to shower using the normal above head shower rather than using a hose and that was just being able to shower was life-changing for me I felt I could be clean I could I could start walking a bit more I could oh the biggest one for me massive one was my daughter never heard my voice before not not in a proper way so I came home and we've recorded this and I spoke to my daughter for the first time and she was in good shock as well. That's amazing. And then also the other really big one was I was able to read her a bedtime story. Because yeah. with the tracheostomy and with all these other parts, it was too difficult to have a daughter on one arm and book on the other. But for the first mm-hmm. time since she's been born, I've been able to speak to her and read her a bedtime story. So I was absolutely over over the moon. It's the um, little
0: things, aren't they? You know, it's it the really is. It really counts. And uh, that bonding that you could now have with your child. That's amazing.
1: Absolutely amazing. So let's move over from the surgery and the recovery, which went really well, to October of that year. Mm -hmm. What seemed to be happening was that I was able to do more activities. I was able to speak well, but something just didn't feel right. Mm. I was still feeling a little bit of a lump in my throat, well, not a throat, but quite low down, <sighs> started getting things trapped in my throat. It felt like a lot of phlegm was getting trapped there. I had to clear my throat a lot and start getting back on the nebulizer. So at this point, even though we'd settled down on treatments after the major surgery, I contacted the doctors down in London and They were so amazing. Within a few days, they had me down there ready for a scope for me when I was asleep. And what they found, which again, this goes back to this beloved lottery thing of me being unlucky. What they found was a second stenosis that was below my original one. And the second stenosis had been caused by having a new trackie put in for two weeks during when I had my resection. It was that brand new trachea site that only had been open two weeks. When it closed, there was hypergranulation at that point and created a what well, substantial lump within the inside of my trachea. So yeah, unlucky there. We thought we were out of the woods second time. And, and it broke my heart when the surgeon came round afterwards and he looked really disappointed and said, look, Charlie, I'm afraid whatever type of dilation that I do with you, it's not going to work. This isn't going to fix it. What we really need to do is do a second resection, which I couldn't believe because we often talk about resections as being the thing, the gold standard. You do a resection
0: and then you can can
1: be okay for five years or ten years. But that wasn't the case. So... We booked a day and in February of this year now, so we're really coming up to the present. I had my secondary section, but this was quite different to my previous one. The previous month was more of a cleaning everything out, getting rid of 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 a lot of the different stuff that were the issues in my throat and then putting back artificial cartilage, putting back skin graft, rebuilding what was existing. Mm. This time, because of this concern that hypergranulation was just going to continue to come back with this, the solution was to essentially extract part of my trachea, essentially cut it out and then use a lot of skin graft to completely cover the inside with this skin graft and they had found that in the past this can be really successful for people with hypergranulation like myself and this skin graft can really stop the skin feeling like it needs to continue to heal so Where I had was the th-
0: graft from? Was that your leg?
1: That was from my leg it was from my right thigh and it's so funny, you think grafts are going to be painful but you don't feel a thing. Not afterwards. It's no pain at all, which is really good. Because it looks Um, really sore. It does. It looks really sore. I think it must be the way that the nerves have developed in the leg that that specific layer that's taken off doesn't seem to have nerves, which was a massive relief for me. But I wanted to make clear to those people listening that might think that once I've had one resection that second one probably more straightforward i think what i want to stress is that for this one because it was such a different type of surgery Mm. what happened for me for the first two weeks in hospital is i i literally had my chin strapped with some few wires onto my neck i essentially was chin to neck with a little bit of space for over two weeks and that was incredibly scary it was it was incredibly difficult thing to to live with it and it took a lot of out of you to accept that mm-hmm. because it felt so unnatural already mm-hmm. struggling with breathing because you had to put the stent back in at that point but then having neck to chin all the time and you said you looked at doctor's shoes i kept having to remind people you've got to sit down you've got to you've got to almost kneel down so i could actually see you yeah. so i I was stuck in bed at this point, and it felt ridiculous, really, because you're so used to having your head up or moving Absolutely. that all of that. But and also because of the way it's cut, you do lose some of your muscle strength as well, and some sure. of the muscles in your throat. So again, not just the throat, not the chin to the neck, but also you're kind of using losing some of those muscles. They're regrowing back that you're trying to use when you're moving your head. So it was a, it felt almost like a brand new one for me the secondary section but i think the great thing about this one was that once even two weeks afterwards when they were really able to look down it just looked brilliant it looked really brilliant and there was no signs of granulation and it was so good that although they normally do touch-ups they decided they didn't need to do anything Great. which was wonderful then i went back six weeks later for a follow-up mm-hmm. in which again it was planned to be a touch-up and they looked in and said this is the this is the the best we could hope for with this we don't need to do anything oh so um, good we don't plan any more surgeries and we will see you for a telephone consultation six months time Wow!
0: What great news! And yeah. that's where we are. We're waiting for that telephone console
1: Exactly. It's just amazing. This was the first time in three years that mm. I didn't have a planned surgery coming up.
0: Oh, you and must! Have, what a weight lifted.
1: Yeah, it was. So the total number of surgeries was nineteen. I wow. have had I've had nineteen surgeries in two and a half years. It's it's basically a surgery a, a month, and it's obscene. The kind of journey that me but my poor family as well had to go through with every single surgery
0: goodness I can't imagine it did you find any helpful ways to prepare for each surgery how did you cope with doing 19 surgeries
1: so there are a number of things that were really helpful for me and I kind of wanted to bring them to the field in case it could be recommended for any other patients really going through this I think the first one was that after I'd gone through this quite a few times, I realized that you have to bring a lot of things with you into hospital. You you want to bring as much comfort as you can, familiar items. You want to bring often photos of family. I almost turned my room into, I don't know, it was a room representing not just me, but everyone I loved around me. Um, Um, And my wife did a great thing that before I went, she basically wrote out and and got these really funny cards online and wrote out one card a day. So for every day I was in hospital, I could open a card, look forward to it. It was always really funny and rude. And we could put it on this mantelpiece. That There's a great photo of it, having this mantelpiece just by the window in which I have so many cards and so many photos. And I could just look at that and know what I was Doing this for what was important mm. to me. The other one that I really wanted to, to stress to people is that as humans, we're, f- we're naturally independent, we naturally like our privacy, and we naturally want to be in control of a situation. Mm. But to prepare someone for surgery, especially surgery where you're in for a long time, you have to be able to surrender your independence, you have to surrender to the process. And it sounds ridiculous but you essentially have to realize that at that point your body is shared it's yours but also the doctors and the nurses and the way that in terms of the process of it it's, it's everyone's kind of body you have to accept that the timings and the way of the schedule are hospitals can be very different to that at home yeah but then you also have to surrender to time passing freely this is a really hard concept to get your head around we always want productive time we have a list of things in the day we have busy schedules and we have all these things going on but when you go into hospital you start have to accept that time will pass freely Mm -hmm. some points will pass for two hours without noticing other points you're counting down the minutes Mm -hmm. but you have to be okay with that otherwise you feel like you've completely lost the person that you were before coming into hospital. Mm. Um, There were just a few more things that I wanted to say. There was one thing that was really helpful for me. What I was able to do is to arrange a rotor, And what this meant was that I had friends in London. I told them I was in hospital. You kind of, again with that, you had to acknowledge that they would see you in a gown, looking ill, but once you accepted that, booked them in they were able to come to see me my mum god bless her came up from Brighton on the train Mm. every second day she was absolutely dedicated and always got me a coffee from the cafe below Mm. that was really kind and then also my wife was able to come down on in the bus so with a combination of these rotors in which about half an hour hour they're allowed to be there yeah it was really able to look forward to something, have a point in your day where you feel a bit like that person that you were, but also a reminder of things in the world are good and that things are happening. And then once you leave hospital, you can be part of that. You know that life hasn't just stopped. So those are really the things that I would say completely changed my perspective on having surgery and once I was able to accept some of these different concepts it really allowed me to embrace the process and actually the last time I went to the hospital I quite enjoyed it yeah. i i was able to read all the books that i'd be wanting to read for months mm. i was able to binge some tv shows that i thought i'm never going to get around to this because it's three series but yeah suddenly in the hospital i'm able to do that i was really trying to turn it into something where there were some things that i would think i'd never have time to do i mm. had time to do so it was wonderful um
0: it's just changing a situation which could be quite negative into a positive. And I yes. think those are really useful tips to help anybody who's in the same position, whether they're going for airway stenosis surgery or whether they're going to be induced for a baby. You know, any, any eventuality, you can all use all of those tips. So, yeah, that's absolutely valuable. And thank you for sharing that. Is there anything that you wish you'd been told by the healthcare professional team that you feel that would be useful or helpful for other people going for stenosis surgery?
1: I think in this example, I'm going to focus on the period of initially being given a tracheostomy. This, it was such a traumatic point in my mm. life that i, I really want to focus on this yeah um so of course rightly so with the nurses and the surgeons in the hospital the mm. focus was a hundred percent on safety yeah i had training over about five days learning how to take care of it how to change the tubes how to do the dressings mm. learned who to call in emergency ex- exact all these kind of things that were essential to my of course my my health and my life but i think the part that i really hope in in the future comes more to the fold is talking to patients while they're in hospital about a life with a tracheostomy and living your day-to-day life because it affects you so profoundly that i don't think many people with tracheostomy can compare their Mm -hmm. life before a tracky to with it Mm. i just wanted to give some examples so earlier i did talk about speaking which was a big one but the other ones that very important were things like showering and Mm. having bathing when i went into when i was leaving the hospital and we had arranged for supplies to go home what had been arranged for me was to have essentially the straps that hold the tracheostomy tube in place, they only planned to, to, for me to change it once a week. Mm. And that meant that the assumption was that I was going to shower once a week because any showering would always completely wet the back and okay. it no longer was functioning. Yeah. So it was heartbreaking for me that it was assumed that I was going to Bathe once a week. And I'm somebody who showers every morning. And Absolutely, yeah. what I had to do is I really had to fight for more supplies because I said that you can't assume just because I'm ill that I'm not gonna bathe. I mm. I the being clean and washed and these kind of things was so important to me. Another one that was really important was eating. Not just the safety of it, but trying to work out the combination of because eating is a real community. Yeah. It's chatting with family with friends it's eating it's sharing things there's a whole social part of it so it was really difficult for me to learn to i was okay i could swallow just about i was able to do that part but i had to then work out the eating the socializing the speaking all these really difficult things and also so much mucus that you get from when you eat, the amount of mucus that b- builds up in your throat means that it's a very difficult point for breathing and clearing things. The mm. combination of all these things is really tough. And the final one I wanted to mention was sleeping. So mm. sleeping, you imagine it's quite straightforward that you go lie down in your bed, nice cushion behind you, and you, oh, you're there and you drift off to sleep. But I think what people don't realise is that once you've had this surgery it's incredibly difficult to find positions that you can actually breathe Mm. The, the, the positions of where your next muscle uh kind of relaxes and the different points in your head you had to find very specific positions where you could still breathe and lie down and be comfortable mine was like a slightly 45 degrees to my left head slightly back pillows in a perfect way and then i could breathe i could lie there i could feel comfortable and eventually fell to sleep. But oh, these things are 18 months of it. it's. It's things that I wish I had known. It's not as
0: if you could just do a quick nap. No. Can you? you can't just say, oh, I'm really tired, or the baby no. was up last night. i just never quick five-minute nap. There's no chance of that.
1: No. So I think why we wanted to take forward from this is that my idea, if this could ever be taken forward by any trust, I'd be very grateful, is that when someone has first been given their tracheostomy, mm. that before that, a I might call a buddy system or yeah. something along those lines is set up where you actually have a stock of people that are willing to volunteer yeah. who have had a tracheostomy either now or in the past, for over about a month. Yeah. And what you can do is you can have these people in contact with each other where the person who's just had it can ask a gazillion questions, yeah. the stupidest ones I don't want to tell nurses, mm. the ones about things that are very private, even things like intimacy at home and, mm. and relationships with family things, all the way to the person who's had it for a month going back to them saying look this was really helpful for me try lying this way when you're doing this in the shower really get this thing on your neck and then do this and then try this and it could really help my hope is that if trust can adopt this in the future it can massively allow those who have just had a tracheostomy mm. basically they stop learning completely from themselves but Mm -hmm. are actually learning from others can massively change the timing of their adjustment to massively shorten it so that was just one idea i had what
0: a lovely idea yeah local tracking networks basically and a buddy system mentor mentor and mentee sounds great so how do you wish for patient care to change in the future
1: so uh, there were three things that i'd written down that really came out to me as being very important i think the first one that i wanted to discuss was i think this is the case in quite a few trusts around the country but the very advanced Trachea nurses tend to be employed using macmillan funding so it comes through the cancer route and mm. then they're provided they're funded by macmillan and i think unfortunately in some of these cases the focus then for the tracheostomy team is primarily around those with cancer yeah. i think it'd be really great if the, the within each trust the tr- the, the trachea Area was widened a bit to cater for all types of reasons for tracheostomy and not just cancer, which I think would be absolutely brilliant. Mm.
0: What do you mean by that? Do you mean by like the trachea nurses to have more education and benign conditions, or do you feel that the actual areas that you're, be- you're being looked after, surrounded by lots of head and neck patients with post radiotherapy, and separate that to? being treated with more people with benign conditions I think
1: what I really mean by this is that let's take my example which was that unfortunately due to me being diagnosed with GPA I actually wasn't on the list for any follow-up appointments at all in regards to my tracheostomy, Mm. there were no appointments for tube changes. There were no appointments for using different surgical instruments to remove some of the granulation around around my stoma. Unfortunately, because of the algorithm that was being used and me not having cancer, I wasn't on the list. I feel like anyone with a tracheostomy deserves to be on that list because there was a period during the COVID pandemic where – Everything had shut down and I hadn't had a tube change for about five months. I was in so much pain and there was so much bleeding. Mm. It was horrendous for me afterwards. And that was an example of you people with tracheospies needing that monthly checkup mm. with a nurse. And I. The
0: head and neck patients getting it changed more regularly.
1: Yes, they were. So basically, anyone who had a diagnosis of cancer, they oh. were their default was they were the list and they were seen monthly, if not more regularly than that.
0: Oh dear. So Your thoughts are that actually there should be more funding for people with tracheostomies with benign conditions.
1: Yes. Yes. Essentially, I think that is the case. Because Um,
0: trachee doesn't just mean cancer. No. It means all sorts of conditions. And I think that is a terrible shame that 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 happened to you and I'm really sorry that happened to you but it does highlight you know the that sometimes laryngology patients especially in your case a bit with a benign condition were put to the back of the queue in mm. and actually everyone should be treated equally with regards to that thank you for highlighting that as well and maybe anyone who's listening who's commissioning these services could maybe take this on board are there any other things that you'd like to change for patient care in the future
1: so, the second thing that that I wanted to discuss was that medical professionals I think this goes more broad than with airways do look after their patients and are in the hospital so frequently that I think they forget that what is going on for patients is so rare it's n not just rare but it's not normal it's yeah. not routine for them and comparing someone to a an age and sex match person in. The population, they're completely different. And I think that's one of the things that's really important. And I think it's important for medical professions to acknowledge that it is, it's a really big deal Mm. for those people going through this. The example I wanted to bring to the table was voice banking. So early on in the story that I described, that I lost my voice, there was a point where we thought I was never going to speak again. I was never going to have my voice. And uh, some of this was a miscommunication between e and and myself, but there was a point where we were convinced. We'd moved over to speech and language therapy. They had recommended voice banking and to start mm. in the next few weeks for me to do voice banking, just in case I lose my voice forever.
0: But- the example get a voice memo on your phone and or a dictaphone and just start saying things so
1: that you've got... Exactly. There's, there's a companies that, that do this, and essentially, you have to cover about 1,500 to 2,000 words. They can either be phrases or they can be words themselves. And you have to cover everything on this to be able to almost have a press button kind of. Yeah.
0: Um, what, a um, what a process system. What a process to, firstly, just to do it, you know, voice mm. basically, but also a process to process that. Mm. Is it in your mind, to come to terms with that and then having to to go through it, very little voice anyway.
1: hundred percent, and this is the part that I really wanted to focus on, but what I want to make clear on is that initially, from the ENT team to the speech and language, it didn't seem to them like they didn't realize that it was a big deal. Yeah. I think I said to the speech and language once, I said, "Is there any kind of psychological?" Support for this. I said, this is, this, this is world changing and absolutely terrifying. Is there not any psychological support for this? And they looked back and said, why do you need psychological support? We've never offered this before. We might be able to look into it, but this is definitely not usual practice for us. And that kind of broke my heart a bit because it's, it's just one of those things where I just, even though people haven't gone through it, I just, want and hope that people can empathize and realize that this example of voice banking was absolutely massive part of our life and scary and we needed support as well as the actual process we needed the psychological support with that which it's a grief grief
0: process it is to lose something to lose your voice to lose a clear voice to lose it's just uh, your voice, as I've said in previous podcasts, it's so personal. Mm. and the connection you have with people just spontaneously talking, or the connection you have with your child, mm. and being able to say that spontaneously as it, like we were saying, without having to put your, fin- for your think your, you know you need to put your finger over or whether you have to press a button if you've got problem, it just blows my mind that people have to go through this and they do come to terms with it but we we as you say we really ought to be much more proactive in getting psychological support and again it's, it's about funding it's about finding the right people interested in these types of scenarios like clinical psychologists but it's also the commissioners understanding that the psychological support for anyone in this scenario is so important and yes you may be the best surgeon you might get a fantastic outcome but it's the journey it's the process it's all of this i've got a number of patients through covid that post-traumatic stress disorder from their horrendous experiences and it's not that it it, it was just a, a normal itu experience but that in itself is so abnormal For anyone going through that, from the patient perspective, and that someone going through this, even if they've got a solid rock behind them, they're really stable, you need psychological support, regardless of how you had your wife, you had your mum, all these people supporting you, you still need that psychological support from a professional, from the wider network of people in the same position. And I guess this is maybe one tiny little thing to help others by going through this experience in this podcast today that people, we can guide people to and say, look, it's okay to feel these feelings. It's okay to feel that, that this isn't right. It shouldn't be happening to me to go through each step because with anything that you're taking away, your voice or something, it's trying to go through that grief process because you're not the same person as you were five years before.
1: Hundred percent. I was lucky enough in London to be provided with a health psychologist, and I can't put it into words, but but he he changed my life. Mm-hmm. And he kind of had seen me and had seen me after surgery and said, "How about we try something different?" We tried something called ACT therapy, which is essentially about acceptance and commitment. And the combination of those two things, essentially moving from the psychological standpoint of saying that you have to change things around you to with acceptance and commitment is about accepting that you can't change those things, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. And once we went through this, and we went through this for a number of months, my outlook and my mental health, completely different to where it was before. Mm -hmm. And that I was able to accept where I currently was just, I was just so much happier and so much more content, and just I felt where I had always wanted to be when I uh, started having the illness. Mm. So I would, I would say, even having a single health psychologist mm. within the process that can identify those that may need it can change that person's life, and after, often. For the Trust massively reduce admissions for psychological harm or physical harm or hospitalizations for many different things mm. because that person doesn't need that many sessions but having that little bit of time can just massively change where they go in the future and where their trajectory is. It's
0: about changing people's outlook isn't it and as you say understanding what's going on as well and accepting it but it's more than that i think having positive mental attitude massively impacts on not just your kind of mental well-being but actually your physical well-being because the way that you physically rehabilitate all that positive energy will i i truly believe convert to well-being and restoration and rehabilitation within your larynx for your example or I think there's definitely a contributory factor to it and if you're accepting about things that you will engage in your rehabilitative like medicine compliance and your exercises that you need to do and increasing your physical fitness and doing all the right things that kind of doctors and speech language therapists and nurses advise and when we obviously we can't make you do it but I think if you're feeling as a patient that you're not really engaging in it and you don't really feel enough to do it whether that's physically or mentally I think or if you're disengaged you're just not going to do it and you're not going to do as well whereas I think if you just have that little bit of input from psychotherapy, psychologist, I think it can massively change your recovery process.
1: I completely agree. So the third point that I wanted to discuss was that unlike with other specialties that I think have closer relations with ENT, in my experience and experience of many other people I know with vasculitis, unfortunately at the moment there is quite a disjoint between ENT and rheumatology. I think it's partly due to their services being so different and that ENT has their own wards. They're dealing a lot with a There's a lot of emergencies. There's a lot of surgeries and rheumatology tends to be more satellites uh, dealing with Thousands of patients around it tends to be very medication focused and then elective people come in from immunosuppressants. But overall, it's, it works in a very different way. But I would really hope that in the future, that in some centres that specialise more in, say, for example, for airways, or say, for example, focus quite a lot on the nose, that they do have some joint clinics between ENT and rheumatology. I think the worst thing for me was being the middleman between two specialties that didn't speak to each other or email each other or call each other. And that meant that my memory, my limited clinical knowledge, my essentially what I knew was exactly saying to each person. And I think I'm not the right person to do that. I could give a layman's patient view, but I can't express it in the way that that i should and i do think that there's a bridge that that hopefully at some point can be built a little bit more between these two specialties that allows them to ah, work a bit more they they're a bit more synchronicity really Mm. that they can link together and
0: communicate better yes within the team knowing that they have a telephone number that they can call each other up or because as you say where I work I'm in a particular hospital and I know the rheumatologists are in the same trust but they're in a totally different base. We exchange emails and things but we don't have an MDT as such so it is more difficult it's like you have to dictate a letter you then refer to the rheumatology team and then they then have to read that letter hopefully via email and then it but there's just so much delay and actually if there was better working relationships and so we have to try harder uh, as ENT and laryngologists to to work and build up those networks to have more effective communication between teams
1: yeah I think what I want to stress with this is that it's, it's not just harm to the patient but it's actually harm for both specialties I think as I mentioned earlier an example is vasculitis there are biomarkers but again as, as i'd said before that a lot of the indications about whether the disease is active is actually looking physically at the ear the nose and the throat having a very detailed report that can then be sent to rheumatology to give them this holistic kind of view of it and it's the same for ent mm-hmm. if you're doing surgeries blinded to how much inflammation is going on mm. you could either have a surgery that's really effective or a surgery that has no effect at all mm. and the patient's coming back complaining about issues within a few weeks so i think it would really benefit both sides because it, as i started off my story it's a really important thing to have the right balance between both The drugs and the medicine and managing Mm. an underlying condition but also the surgical side and and that balance of the both because one honestly one can't work without the other and the other can't work with the one
0: yeah we have to think more holistically right yes so moving on to my (laughs) final question Did you have any funny moments during your journey?
1: I I wanted to talk about funny things because I think what's often assumed is if someone is is ill and if someone is going through multiple treatments in hospital, that life is bad, that life is a bit hopeless really. But I think what I want to stress with this is that we as humans always adjust and whoever in clinic that might be having a horrendous time of things, honestly… There is always some light. There's always something positive. I think it's just so important to remember that that it's not all bad. And there's some real gems in there I wanted to bring up, which is only funny because I wasn't hospitalized, was that my my daughter was quite unwell. And this was only a few months down from her being born. Mm. And I was patting her on my shoulder, trying to burp her. and We were trying to get her to rest before she was going into bed. But what she seemed to do is she leant forward slightly and she projectile vomited on my tracheostomy. So I had ill child, sick child vomit go all the way down my tracheostomy, all the way in. (laughs) And luckily, at that point... I had ex- some experience of this very strong exhalation that you can do to breathe out and to get things up. Yeah. So I was able to do that and oh fortunately God. nothing happened, but 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 it's
0: <laughs> not one they write in the guide. No, we were thinking it. about
1: explaining an A and E that my daughter <laughs> had thrown up in my tracheostomy yeah. and I may have a lung infection because oh, of this yeah. It was one of those things. And the final one that I wanted to bring up was yeah. that when I had my tracheostomy, I had my, what would that be? That'd be my 28th birthday when I was 28. And this was in the summer. We were talking about what things to have at the party. This is our daughter's first experience of a birthday. We thought, well, we're going to do bits with balloons. Let's do bits with confetti. Let's do some other bits. And my wife ended up buying party blowers. I don't know if you know these party blowers that you essentially blow into it and it's rolled up a piece of paper oh, that shoots yes. out yes, and yes, makes yes, a tune. Yes. And essentially she was a bit embarrassed having bought these because she realized that I couldn't do it. I, there was no way I could get no. the strength in my mouth. So it was a little bit one of those kind of moments where we go, oh, life isn't what it was. Like, uh, <sighs> but then what was funny enough is half an hour later when they're in the other room, I came with a brave wave. I said, Look, this perfectly fits into my tracheostomy. It's the exact size. Yeah. So I run into the room, my daughter's there, and I go, surprise. And I blow into my tracheostomy and have the most wonderful party blower that made this amazing noise coming out my tracheostomy. Yeah. And I could just sit there, bring it in, pushing it out, bring it in. And my daughter never seen something like this before, so she was absolutely fascinated. Mm, and I felt I like, loved it. This was the epitome of someone adjusting to their new life, adjusting to a condition by using a party blower out their tracheostomy. Oh my word. So so these are some of the funny things. There were many more, I have to say. Oh,
0: it's been amazing to hear all your stories, your funny experiences, the personal experience of your airway stenosis. And I can't thank you enough for joining us today and opening the doors to opening our eyes to what it's like to experience it firsthand as a young man going through and facing all the other challenges in life and all the difficulties and having to do that with you know a serious medical condition that could have been life-threatening and I'm very pleased to to hear that you've got through it and that you're really in a really good place at the moment. So thank you so much. Have you any final thoughts or take home messages for any listeners out there?
1: I think I wanted to say something and I want to say something quite personal. This is really me coming from the the heart that I want to put out there on podcast out in the open that I just wanted to say a massive thank you to my wife, Jen, As I've said through this podcast, I've lost my speech. I've lost my hearing and essentially at different points, I've lost myself. I've been so ill that I've lost that person that I was. And she has been my ears. She's been my voice. She's been my advocate. I was only diagnosed with GPA because of her. She was the one that, that got me into the clinics, got me into the emergency room. She fought for me. She's always had my back. She's been very patient when I was ill, particularly when I wasn't able to be the dad that I wanted to be. And the m- most important thing is that she respected my need to take back control of my life. She respected that I, I needed to be me and that just having things done for me wasn't enough for me. I needed to be able to take things on and do things myself and she's supported me every step of the way to pull back my life to where it is today where I'm back swimming I'm swimming 50 lengths in the swimming pool I can be out with my daughter every day in the parks in the woods I've just started back on my PhD I'm doing everything that I've wanted to do and that's just been so much is thanks to her I'm so grateful that she stuck with me through all of this
0: I am um... So delighted to uh, just hear all of that, to hear that you were so well supported. And I'd like to thank her too. And thank you and everyone for listening. It's been amazing to hear such such a personal story. And it's so lovely to hear that you had such great support throughout the process, particularly from your wife. Yeah, it's such a personal thing to expose to the world, your story. So thank you very much. We really appreciate everything um, that you've, you've shared today. And hopefully, I'm sure it will be of great use and help, not just to patients, but actually to the healthcare professionals listening to really gain that insight. Because the time that we have with patients is pretty limited. You don't really get to know each and every individual person. So it's a real pleasure to have that insight from your experience so thank you so we hope you've enjoyed listening this has been BLA Connections a clear voice I've been your host Natalie Watson our full series can be found in the podcast provider of your choice or you will find all stored on our BLA Connect app for easy access we would also love to hear from you please feel free to email with any topics you'd like us to explore any questions you have, along with any suggested experts you would like to hear from. Also, if you'd like to contribute to these podcasts, please email inquiries at britishlaryngological.org. Thank you for listening, and we hope you found our podcast informative. Please remember to subscribe and do leave a review with your podcast provider. We do appreciate your likes, subscribes and reviews.